This is the Deep Dive with Brooks Spector. Investigative conversations about issues that impact our lives. Be curious. Friday mornings at 9 a.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. And good morning to you all. And this is indeed Brooks Spector. It is the Deep Dive. It is Friday morning and it's just a little past nine o'clock. And uh, today we have... A special guest for you, somebody I've grown to know and appreciate, read carefully over many years, and Dr. Franz Cronier, who was for many years the head of the Institute of Race Relations, uh, and he's now gone on to an independent career as an analyst and corporate advisor, and for some people, the country's favorite Cassandra, shall we say, up until fairly recently. Uh, when he stunned a lot of people by being optimistic. It, 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 it managed to throw all the crockery out the window and upset the table and confuse the heck out of readers and listeners when he expressed at least a modified degree of optimism. We'd gotten used to, I think, for years of Franz shouting in the wilderness in the dark, beware, beware, things are going to pieces, quickly fix and then he comes along and says, you know, maybe not so bad. And let me read a, a sort of a, a sample version of that. Um, and this comes from a recent introduction to an interview he did. Uh, for over a decade, Dr. Franz Cronia was South Africa's party pooper. The former CEO of the Institute of Race Relations was perceived as an arch pessimist, a man guaranteed to prick bubbles of optimism before they could inflate. He regarded himself merely as a realist, sharing the harsh truth because anything else would have been dishonest. Cronier's prescience when the country had slid into its darkest period adds considerable weight to the credibility of his forecast of a political transformation that is set to unleash South Africa's undeniable potential. Friends, that's, that's not the Franz Cronier we grew to know. And let me just add before he before he responds to that, one of the things I like about him best is the the sheer chutzpah of some of his his actions in life. He signed on for a job. Uh, this is tales out of school, but he signed on for a job as a as an equestrian instructor in the U.S., not knowing anything about equestrian events. Read a book on the airplane on the way there, so that he could step off the plane, step into the job and know what he was talking about. I, I, you've got to be impressed by that. Franz, welcome. Good to have you. Morning, Brooks. It's very good to see you too. And I, I, I knew how I, I could ride. I could ride well, but, but I, I wasn't sort of, sort of up for the sort of pony club uh, rarefied atmosphere of America's East Coast. And, and I, I learned very quickly. Uh, Brooks, it's lovely to see you. I, I wasn't a pessimist. I, 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 I like it. It was realistic. And, you know, the calls over the years turned out to be pretty much on, on, on the money. Now I find myself again at odds with the prevailing mainstream opinion. And there are reasons for this. First reason is a big and very important one. We became a democracy 25 years ago, 30 years ago. So that if a point was ever reached where the country was not well governed to the advantage of all its people, there would be a mechanism available for them to change that. And I think we're busy seeing that happening now. It's the it's voting, it's the ballot box, it's a very sort of distilled essence of the sort of 
entire liberation struggle, what it came down to. And the great test of South Africa was always going to be this, that, that, that if, if things got tough and remained tough, uh, would that uh, a democratic series of institutions be sufficient to bring relief? The way you can test that is to uh, measure it and uh, poll on it, uh, read election results, uh, read data on protest action. And the, the, the story over time, I'll, I'll do for you in a minute, the full 25 years, is that really in its first 10 to 15 years in government, ANC did pretty well. The number of people with a job doubled. They took the budget deficit that they'd inherited from the Nats and turned it into a surplus, did that in 13 years. And their service delivery efforts were actually much better than they ever received credit for. And uh, one of the sound bites sort of I relied on on that is, you know, in the first, through, through, let's say through the era of Mr. Mbeki, 10 formal houses were built in the country for every shack that was newly erected. Life was getting better. It was getting better for the great majority of people. And as a consequence of that, they rewarded the government of the day. And in 2004, as this thing really was getting momentum, the ANC under Mr. Mbeki was six percentage points stronger in an election, about 69%, than what it had won in 94 decade previously under Mr. Mandela. And all, all manner of strange explanations were concocted for this. There were liberation loyalty voters, which, which really came down to saying, ANC voters are incredibly stupid. They can't really think. So they just vote like voting cattle routinely for the same thing. I mean, that could be the only explanation for the, for the continued popularity of the party. It, it was all nonsense, was uh, frankly slightly offensive. ANC voters were voting for the ANC in greater proportion because their lives were getting a great deal better, particularly relative to what they'd experienced under decades of colonial and apartheid-era oppression. The flip side of that coin existed, though, that if the ANC ever broke the spell, if living standards would begin to stagnate or reverse, the odds were pretty good that the ANC voter, a pragmatist at heart, as all people are, ultimately something unique about ANC voters, they might start to leave the party. Pretty early on, to the, towards the end of the era of Mr. Mbeki, my then colleagues and I could see that the trends that had sustained the ANC's initial economic successes were being eroded. We made the call on energy uh, supply, for example, the erosion of the quality of the civil service, the uh, uh, precedent on corruption set during the arms deal, manner, all manner of things. Soon these are being backed up by the hard economic data. We see fixed investment to GDP starting to slip. We see uh, job growth beginning to slow. You know, when the ANC came to power, half of families went to bed without an electrical light. And a decade later, it was 20%. We began to see that number slow. The 20% wasn't getting any better. And we, 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 and there were various other reasons. We began to say, well, you know, if they're not going to sustain the, the economic success, there's going to be a consequence, which we're going to get back to in, in a moment. Brooks. Thanks very much, Franz. Let, let me do this. We have our uh, station identification and bills to pay and commercial messages that are important to our listeners. 
We're speaking with Franz Cronier, formerly head of the Institute of Race Relations and now an independent political analyst and advisor. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we are back live with the Deep Dive. And I am, in fact, just as you heard, Brooke Spector. And our guest this morning is Dr. Franz Cronier, formerly with the Institute of Race Relations. I guess eventually you'll stop hearing that as as part of your introduction. And simply Franz Cronier, independent political analyst and observer of the the good, the bad, the ugly, and the possible in South Africa. You were you were describing the the plateau, the the falling off of growth and opportunity and possibilities, and pairing that with uh, with election and voting data. And what and before we took a break, and- around two thousand and four, the ANC gets to the sort of peak and sort of peters out slowly. After that, they get to a plateau. And living standards indicators begin to plateau. These ones I've listed for you, electricity, uh, jobs, whatever. And thereafter, they begin to fall. And then they begin to fall very rapidly towards the end of the era of Mr. Zuma, continuing into the era of Mr. Ramaphosa. So fixed investment levels plummet. A real per capita GDP which is the amount of uh, uh, wealth or, or, or generated in the economy divided by the number of people and then adjusted for the rate of inflation, uh, begins to fall year after year after year. The budget deficit, which is the difference between what the government spends and what it receives in income, uh, reaches a level that we had only seen three times since the formation of the Union of South Africa in the aftermath of Pierre Rubicon speech in the late 1980s, and then before that, in the aftermath of the Second World War and, and the First World War. Now, that, that deficit in, in 1948 or after 48 is key to explaining why Smuts uh, loses that election, and the, the Nats running out of money at the end is key to explaining why they are forced to surrender their political system. Budget deficits change governments in dictatorial societies, uh, uh, ultimately too, and certainly in democracies, because the government can no longer meet the expectations of its supporters. So we see these trends very, very clearly, starkly, unambiguously. The direction of travel is is very uh, easy to read. Behind that, you begin to read the political data. Now, one piece of data we read was protest actions, the number of violent protests, data collected by the police, the accuracy of that, you know, I'm not going to vouch for, but the trend line upwards was so unbelievably steep that even if you were to say the police could only count half the protests or a third of them, there was a a definite move. Now, Now, a protest movement is a very good thing because what it is is people knocking on the door saying, we also want to come in, we're not happy, please listen to us. And as the protests were really taking off, I think it was Becky Chele in some other capacity, now the police minister, who said, we won't tolerate this nonsense anymore, this sort of violent anarchy, we'll put a stop to it. And and I thought that was a very dangerous thing to say, because protests are a pressure release valve for a society. If you do become authoritarian and suppress protest action, you create the veneer of stability, but later you detonate as North Africa or wherever else. I don't think we're going to be in North Africa because 
We we our pressure release valves work pretty well most of the time. The second political measure we started to look at was the was was the actual one. How are parties doing in elections? So the ANC peaks at sixty nine in two thousand and four. And it, it now bottoms out in 2019 under Mr. Ramaphosa at 57%. Interrupt for a sec. We're speaking with Franz Grunier, the independent political analyst and parenthetically the former head of the Institute of Race Relations, giving us an uncharacteristically optimistic view about South Africa's future with a couple of caveats and some footnotes. But the thing that struck me in that recent interview I I cited was that you are among uh, a number of analysts and observers saying the future of governance and government in South Africa now going forward is coalition government, whether it's at the local, the provincial, or the national level. The thing that strikes me most well, most importantly about such an analysis, and I'm not sure I disagree with you, is the unruliness of coalition governance in this country as opposed to, say, uh, Germany or the Netherlands, but uh, somewhat in parallel with the way coalitions seem to, to be cobbled together or hammered together in a place like Israel, where they remain unstable until they fall apart and then they start up again. But in some places, coalitions become natural and normal. We don't seem to have that circumstance in this country, even though you're projecting that's our future path. Yeah, let me answer that. It's the right question. So in in the midst of all of this, after I, I left the IRR, I end up sitting on the board of a small think tank startup called the Social Research Foundation. Very small, very modest. It starts to do and, and produce a lot of very high social research. That's what it does. A lot of polling, a lot of data. This is now for me almost the final piece in the puzzle. It allows me to complete the argument. Just let's one moment recap. So you with me. A decade of good economic performance, 15 years, ANC sees the benefits in elections. Decade, 15 years of bad performance, ANC starts to get hammered. Now I've got this final piece of the puzzle. What are people thinking and wanting now? Our most recent polls, the very best we can do, being as, from Nancy perspective, as optimistic as possible, on voter turnout and, and, and a few other factors, uh, likelihood of voting, we can get the ANC to 52%. That's the high end. That's the high water mark now. The likelihood is they're under 50 and they're going to lose an election. No one's going to beat them outright. And what, what we start to do is gravitate towards a position where a deal will have to be made between various parties about who's going to govern the country. When we go further and we ask the, the, the public, how, we, we ask a number of questions. We ask them, how do you feel? Are you happy? Are you sad? What do you feel good about? Public opinion in South Africa is deeply negative. It, it is stunningly so. I'm actually on, on a, a screen below me here looking at a chart, which is which is seeing the a measure of public confidence in the future plummeting at a rate that I find almost unbelievable to read. In all of that misery, there's one thing that generates really 
positive emotions. And that's the idea that perhaps South Africa's politicians could learn to work with each other and not against each other in order to deliver the circumstances that the country enjoyed in the decade after 1994. This thing is the winner. If you're a politician and you work together with your former adversary and you, the public, just esteems you as, as extraordinary. These are early days for us, Brooks, for 400 years. What happens here in this part of the world was determined throughout time by one very powerful actor, whether it was the Dutch or the British or the Nats or the ANC, one group could pretty much determine what was going to happen within the borders of the modern South African state. That is busy changing right now in real time. And you've got to give it a bit of time for these parties to, it's a a totally new game. The biggest party is no longer the one that gets to call all the shots. The little ones, the, the, the kingmakers, are, are very much influenced. It's going to be unstable for a time. But, this, but, 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 but you know, we, we're not going from stability to instability. We're going from instability and, and a mess to a different kind of instability and a mess. My thesis is this, and, and, and it, hangs, it hinges on an if. If. A significant, as necessary, a majority of South African political leaders can find it within themselves to work together in building a national government after 2024 that replicates a lot in policy and ignores some key points of what the ANC really did when it came to power. Then we are on the brink of a real reform movement. And you read the press and things, business, something must be done. You know, we must have what, what, what we must have social compacting now. I believe one report sent by business to the presidency is a thousand pages long on social compacting. There's this sort of cry, someone must do something. It's all happening. The the social compact is there, it's real, it's ordinary people. And this the sense that if we pull together, we can make it work. The social fabric of South Africa, the way people relate with each other across lines of race and class is very robust, much more than I think many people anticipate. The someone must do something, it is being done at elections, election after election. And our latest numbers, the Social Research Foundation numbers show that ordinary people, under the noses of business and the politicians and the elite and whoever are at on the brink of actually bringing about the reform movement. The if, again, is will whatever conflagration of politicians is now made possible, will they be able to work together? If they do, then with some confidence, I'll tell you that we're past the worst and we're on the brink of a new upside and further that that upside may be as great as as what in in, in real quantitative terms uh, we experienced in the decade after 94. There's the thesis, Bruce. I'm I'm Brooks. We're we're speaking with Dr. Franz Grunier, uh, formerly Institute of Race Relations, now an independent analyst and uh, a variety of guises, and at least in my mind, the un, unfamiliarly optimistic Franz Kronia, uh sounding just a little bit like the ghost of of the late 
Don't sell slobber in, in, a, in a funny kind of way. <laughs> I, I'm not sure you agree with that, but uh, it, 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 there's a certain echo of that it, it, for me. But in much of what you have said or been interviewed by or written uh, in recent months, certainly, there is a serious footnote, uh, and that is the question of electricity and energy and the ability of the country to deliver that or not to deliver it. And if it doesn't, then we we go back to staring at the abyss again. Yeah, a very serious position now. The, the data is uh, off the top of my head. We have installed capacity of about 45,000 megawatts, but only around 25,000 of that works and produces electricity. Some of the estimates that, that, that I've produced are that should we wish to aspire to replicate the growth rates of other emerging markets, the economic growth rates, which is a necessary step to break the unemployment crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we will need to install over the next decade a quantum roughly equivalent to what we're producing today. Uh, uh, that's daunting. There is, is one way to do that. It's a fleet of nuclear stations five, six, 4,000 4, megawatt nuclear stations across the country. I believe that that is, the, that, that is a plausible um, uh, uh, option, depending on how we, how we handle our foreign relations. The green stuff has its place. I mean, my, I'm speaking to you powered by the sun. I think it's an extraordinary technology, and, and it's, 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 it's great. But it's not baseload electricity. What you need to power an industrial economy and take an unemployment rate of, you know, amongst young people, 50% and higher and make it less than 10%. Doing that means doubling the number of people with jobs uh, in, in, in South Africa and doing that in 10 or 15 years. Uh, so I think there is an answer. It's a nuclear answer. And if it's a clean energy, it's uh, not pumping coal dust all over the milli lands of, um, of Pumalanga. And um, there's a sol- that is the solution. So I've got an answer to, to, to the energy problem. Well, in other words, what you're really saying is, uh, if I put it as an equation, nuclear energy equals uh, more energy equals economic growth equals jobs equals more political stability and the the bottom line for all of that of course is the ability of the country to deliver the nuclear energy as as you would have it or any other competent energy in less than what eight nine ten years Um, and if it can't do that then the rest of the equation would tend to fall apart. Yeah, that's right. Well, the rest of the equation is then put in a holding pattern. And uh, through that holding pattern, we hope that the social fabric that I described to you as, as relatively strong, and I'm in a strong position to make that claim because the Social Research Foundation is doing the most in-depth public opinion research that I think has ever been done in the country. If that sustains, then we delay for five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever the case is. They, they, um, it's put to me, well, we do, can't do that. It's In five years' time, it's all over, kaput. We will, um, you know, fall off the edge of the earth. I, I don't think that is true. 
The let's do the again some perspectives useful. The the four hundred years that we have had here together, all of us who sit in the borders of this country today, have been characterized by brutal conflicts, grotesque oppression, absurd governments, and economic policies. Through that whole four hundred years, I'll say to you that in only fifteen of them was the country well governed to the advantage of all its people. It's a tough corner of the world. And for all of that, here we sit today as a fundamentally free and open society with a standard of living that in relative terms is almost as high as it was 10 years ago, at which point it was the highest that it had ever been. I think that it's that that we mustn't be complacent, but I, I don't think... I'm not convinced by the thesis that, you know, if this doesn't happen in the next five years, it's all over for us. It's, 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 that's not necessarily true. On building, I don't think we should try and build five nuclear power stations. I think we should put out bids, uh, and, and there are interested parties already. I can tell you that, can't tell you there are, and say, will you come with expertise and build them for us, please? Because um, this this mustn't this isn't a gravy train project. This isn't a, this is a critical actually a national security project. To to and and whether those are Chinese builders and whether they are Western European or American or whether they are Russians, it really doesn't matter. All that matters is delivery uh, and outsourced delivery. And I think that can be. I think that, that I think it's a realistic target. If it's met, then we overcome. What you rightly identify as an obstacle to my thesis, Brooks. I'm, I'm going to pose another difficult question to you, and then go to an ad break, and then give you a chance to think about the answer, and then we'll talk about it some more. Uh, and that's that. I've I've seen recent survey data that say 50 some percent of young people in this country uh, who have jobs and skills and professions are thinking about thinking seriously about throwing the towel in and moving somewhere, anywhere where they can be better off with the bottom line that they're thinking about their families and children. Now, I'll pose that to you. Don't answer. Let me go to, let me do this first. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is indeed Brooke Spector. We're live. We're back with the Deep Dive. That rhymes, doesn't it? And we have as our guest, Dr. Franz Grenier, social analyst, former Cassandra, now currently an optimist, Dr. Pangloss, I presume, almost. Uh, but I, just before we took a station break, I posed the, uh, the question of survey data, which seems to run counter to your, to your thesis to some degree, that a significant share of younger professionals are thinking about pulling up their tent stakes and moving on because of their perception of what's likely to be the future for the families. Uh, a listener has posed a parallel question to me for you, uh, which speaks to the apparent inability of the current government, or governments for that matter, at all levels, to halt the, the, the destruction of painfully built up infrastructure, whether it be railroads or roads or public buildings, or any of the other facilities we all come have come to depend on in a modern industrial and post-industrial society. 
So that's two questions for you, Franz. You have to figure them both out for us and explain why you're still positive. Well, I can figure the first one out quickly because that number, the 53% comes out of a Social Research Foundation report released yesterday evening. And uh, what it found is that um, a quarter of of all adults, essentially, uh, but half of highly skilled adults, and the same would apply for wealthier people, are considering immigration. That's not a new phenomenon. We've seen waves of that uh, in the past. We've suffered terribly as a consequence of it. I mean, the the effect on government revenue of people and skills that have exited the country is absolutely catastrophic and helps to explain the deep deficit now faced by Mr. Gurunguano, who's the finance minister. Uh, This is a trend that will continue as more families hedge themselves against the risks present in a South African future. I think that's a wise thing for them to do and, and a correct thing. I wouldn't try and convince anyone not to do that. But should it begin to appear that coalition parties are able to cooperate in achieving small successes, my read of the data is that that will be influential in staunching the outflow. Your listener calls and says, uh, writes and says, you know, the, the present administration is unable to cease the the, the, the erosion of infrastructure, that is correct, of course. The present administration is not capable of, of, of ceasing that erosion. It, it possesses neither the policies nor the intellect nor often the inclination to do so, and it's certainly running out of the money that it needs to get even the basics right. So that will continue. But it is because of such trends that we see this uh, accelerating shift in in voter and public opinion that begins to settle on on the possible solution of coalitions cooperating to staunch it. If they do that, they will staunch it. If they come with pragmatic policies, investment levels will rise. If we do the nuclear bill, we will solve the, the energy conundrum. And then we will begin to see the upside. It's not going to happen in the short term, but it can begin to happen in the medium term. It can begin to be very successful in the long term. So in in many respects, it's the same call, really, that a person might have made on South Africa in the late 1980s, right after Pierre Viaburda's Rubicon speech. There's no growth. There's turmoil in the streets. White conscripts are fighting young black liberation activists in the streets. Cold War is on the go. Mr. Gorbachev has yet to make the decisions that he now recently died. In that moment, you would have had to make the call based on the evidence that you could see that it wasn't going to be a race war or a collapse or hanging on to the end, but it would be a democratic reform movement, a process that would deliver significant social and economic benefits to South Africa's people. So you've got to make the same assessment again. Uh, uh, and, And my thesis is that should you choose to make the assessment that there is a seriously plausible upside on the horizon, the data, the facts, the trends are are strong in in lending support to that thesis. Franz, um, 
1987, 88, 89, I was here then in a very different set of circumstances. And I remember telling people there was still a chance that it, the ship could right itself and they could fill the holes in the bottom of the hole, but there would have to be an enormous change in government policy, orientation, and action. And I, I also remembered saying, that, as I had for 20-some years, that apartheid's era was over soon, but I could not, of course, identify a year, a date, an event, a circumstance. Um, you're now telling us that the current government's incapable of making this monumental course correction. The voters will take their revenge. You'll have a situation of more fluid politics, coalitions. But I posed to you the same question I did right at the beginning of our conversation. Coalitions are a grand concept in theory, but you have a choice. There is the Dutch German Scandinavian coalition. There is the Israeli version of the coalition. One represents a kind of social stability that incorporates different interests somehow in some balanced kind of way. The other is a constantly warring coalition of people throwing dishes at each other inside the kitchen and tossing each other outside the coalition when they when they can. Um, Something along the lines of the Democratic Party in the United States, I might also add, how do you get from where we are to a coalition of adults? And I think I, that'll be our sort of final question for you as, as our clock is against us. You leave the best to last, because here you have me. This is the vulnerability of my thesis. This is where, where you may undo me. I, I wrote it's, uh, uh, some time back a, a piece, you can find it on, for Business Day, that we will ultimately become a hybrid between of, of what we presently see in the Knesset that was before the Israeli government, the, present, the, the then one collapsed, and, and the Bundestag. So you've got that, use the right analogies. And if I am proved to be wrong, if it doesn't happen, if we fall into ruin, and, and conflict and vast exits of skills, enormous deficits, currency runs to 100 to the dollar will be because of what you just said. One small little factor in the chain that four or five individuals, because it will come down to them, were unable to get over themselves and failed to cooperate sufficiently. These, these will be the leaders of parties, such as bits of the ANC, bits of the DA, bits of ASA, and some of the others that are to come, will come down to decisions of five or six people. And if, if, if they screw it up, then I'm afraid much of what I've put you this morning is, becomes more difficult to sustain. Brooks. Let's, let's sum all this up, but first let's go to our final ad break. Craig, go right ahead. This is The Deep Dive with Brooks Spector. And we have been speaking with Franz Grenier. Um, and we have been speaking with Franz Grenier, uh, telling us our future, gazing into that crystal ball. It's a little murky. It's a little bit un, unclear. There's a couple of smudges on it. In the last, you got a minute and a half, Franz. Bring it all together. Take it on home for us. 
Right. The drivers of South African politics are primarily economic. If life gets better, the incumbents are, are pretty okay. If things begin to reverse, they very quickly start to look for alternatives. We are far advanced in the process that started about 15 years ago of South African voting public, political public, uh, starting to look for solutions on their own. The protest movement was one of those. When that didn't deliver the desired results, we, we saw uh, election figures begin to turn. And the latest polling shows that the turn is now dramatic. It's, 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 it's Hemingway, you know, the, 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 in the sun also rises, the, the chap who says to his friend, how did you go bankrupt? And he says, well, uh, you know, um, first slowly and then very fast. That's not the direct quote, but it's the idea. This is how governments lose control of countries. We are entering the very fast. The public that are going to bring about this change are pragmatic, moderate and centrist to an extraordinary extent. They are in agreement with what they want. What they want is what a person like me would find eminently sensible. The possibility that they bring about a position where a coalition must be formed to govern the country after 2024 is now very good. And if the five or six individuals, let's take it to them, that will lead the political parties that will be central to that coalition are able to work with each other and not against each other, then the upside will materialize. But in the end, I can come, I can, I can, I can, I can, I can counter all your very good uh, critical comments. The energy problem, I can tell you how to deal with that. Uh, all manner of things. The one area where I have my own doubts is whether those five or six people will find it in themselves to do so. If, if they don't, the consequences for the lives of millions of people are something that they should be deeply ashamed of. If they do it, they can claim credit for uh, helping to, to rebuild a South Africa and set it up to become what it should always have remained, one of the greatest countries on earth, Brooks. We have been speaking with Dr. Franz Krunier, one of my favorite people, to give us a, 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 both an apocalyptic and a heroic view of what the future holds. Uh, he's told us we have to have five or six really far-sighted people who can figure things out without the bounds of party loyalty or uh, old discarded ideas. I'd love to meet those five or six people around the table. I really want to hear what they're going to do, Franz. You're going to have to identify them for us and set up that dinner. I look forward to, to being I look forward to being the person that pours the wine for that dinner. Again, thanks very much. We've been speaking with Franz Crenier, political analyst, my resident Cassandra, now turned positive optimist. And we will be back next week with another person of interest, importance, and impact in the deep dive.